This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's May, so we're looking at several health commemorations of note. We have the National Women's Health Week, which was launched by the Department of Health and Human Services to encourage women to make their own health a priority. This includes National Women's Checkup Day, which encourages women to get all of their well-woman visits, things like preventive screenings for heart disease, gynecologic issues, and breast health. Very important. It's important to note, Margaret, that these preventative well visits are largely covered by the Affordable Care Act. If you have insurance coverage, these preventative primary care visits are automatically covered. That's great news. It is, and it really represents a sea change from uh, years gone by, as we remember so well. So many women uh, over the years, particularly those who were economically challenged, would put off the most important screenings for women's health issues. But under the ACA, most of these essential preventive screenings are automatically covered for everyone, no deductibles, no co-pays. And I think over time, that's going to really encourage women to take greater charge of their own health and health care. So important to get these screenings in a timely fashion. May is also Mental Health Awareness Month. It's truly one of the great unmet needs in the healthcare arena. And one of our guests today is quite knowledgeable about that. Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein is the president and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, the largest nonprofit organization committed to advancing mental health research by awarding grants aimed at research that will transform behavioral health care treatment and protocols. There's quite a bit of promising brain research on the horizon, Margaret, and, and behavioral health is starting to get the attention it deserves in the world of overall health. And factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. Bird flu continues to invade the avian population across the country, and the federal government is springing into action. So far, the flu hasn't mutated into a human threat, but the federal government is spending $330 million to slow down the spread of the avian flu. In Minnesota, where over 5 million turkeys have been put down due to the bird flu epidemic, plant workers are being furloughed, and it could have dire consequences on the Thanksgiving turkey market later this year. Bird flu has spread across the entire country at last count. One of the tenets of the Affordable Care Act is that women shouldn't have to pay more for health care just because they're women. And to level the playing field, all preventive care and screenings as well as birth control were to be provided without copay to all insured women. But a look around the country shows many places where the contraception isn't being covered. The studies by the National Women's Law Center looked at health plan coverage documents and consumer complaints in 15 states. One of the studies focused on contraception, while others looked at a range of other women's health issues, including maternity care and breastfeeding support. Among the companies not complying with the law's requirements in at least some states, Aetna, Cigna, Physicians Plus, and Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. If you want to get an idea of how teens might approach drinking behavior, look to the father. According to a recent study out of Taiwan, a long-term study looked at teen drinking behavior as influenced by parental behaviors and found dad's drinking had more influence on the young adult's behavior overall. Mother's drinking behaviors had less influence. But it might also be a case of do as I say, not as I do. 
boys whose fathers were non-drinkers or who were drinkers but were against underage drinking had a 39 to 73 percent reduced risk of drinking alcohol compared to boys whose fathers were frequent drinkers with a favorable attitude towards underage drinking. In boys, knowing his father was against drinking had stronger effects, according to the study. Girls with a non-drinking dad had a 48 to 49 percent reduced risk of drinking, and girls with a non-drinking mom who was against underage drinking had a 77 percent reduced risk of drinking. So maybe there is something to just say no. I'm Ariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein, uh, President and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, the world's leading private funder of mental health research, which was awarded over $300 million in research grants since its inception. Dr. Bornstein is a board-certified psychiatrist. He also serves as editor-in-chief of Psychiatric News, the newspaper of the American Psychiatric Association. He's an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He served as the medical director and CEO of Hollinswood Hospital. Dr. Bornstein is also producer and host of Healthy Minds, a nationally syndicated show on PBS, which seeks to reduce the stigma of mental health issues. Dr. Borenstein is a fellow of the New York Academy of Medicine and serves as chair of psychiatry at the Academy. He's earned numerous awards, including the Federation of Organizations Community Mental Health Man of the Year Award. He earned his undergraduate at Harvard and his MD at NYU. Dr. Borenstein, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to to join you. Yeah. You know, uh, we've had a sort of a wide range of uh, leaders uh, in the behavioral health field uh, on our show, from the folks at SAMHSA to those at the Carter Center for Mental Health Projects and uh, co-chair of the uh, Brain Initiative. And, you know, we hear from them all that the impact of mental illness on society is pretty staggering when you look at the numbers. And one in four Americans will in their lifetime suffer from some form of mental illness. And according to some estimates, mental illness will be the most dominant health condition within a decade. And I'm wondering if you could just take a moment and tell our listeners, uh, give them some more insight into the, the mental health issues affecting the population. Yes. And in some ways, there's a perception that mental health issues may affect those people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, when in reality, that's not true. Basically, everyone has a friend or a loved one who's experienced a psychiatric condition such as depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, uh, chemical dependency. Everybody has somebody important to them who's been touched by these conditions. And the fact that one in four Americans will at some point have one of these conditions, that statistic speaks for itself in terms of how widespread it is. And I think it's important for people to realize how common these conditions are so as to make people more comfortable to speak about them and, most importantly, to seek treatment. Well, Dr. Barnstein, there's this ever-widening list of official diagnoses uh, in psychiatry and behavioral health, which are laid out in great detail in the Psychiatric Professional's Guide to Behavioral Health Diagnosis, known in shorthand as the DSM or the Long-Form Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The most recent edition, the DSM-5, 
I know has been updated to include a more comprehensive list of disorders, but it's it's nothing that you would send the untrained reader to for information. It's really for the professionals. But we understand that the American Psychiatric Association decided to produce a, a companion book written in plain English for the average person to help them in grappling with mental health diagnoses and understanding what they mean. Can you tell our listeners about this book, Understanding Mental Disorders, your guide to the DSM-5, and why the new book is so important for those trying to navigate and understand this world of mental illness and mental health? Yes. I have the the privilege of serving on the editorial advisory board for this consumer's guide to DSM-5, Understanding Mental Disorders. So the DSM-5, the version developed for professionals, really is a guidebook for psychiatrists and other mental health and all healthcare professionals making the diagnosis of different conditions developed with the input of experts throughout the world in various parts of mental health. The top experts were able to review the most current scientific information so that this guidebook would have that information in order to help make a diagnosis. The new consumer guide has been developed so that this information is available to the general public so that people who may be concerned that they're experiencing a condition or that their friend or loved one is experiencing a condition um, can actually go to the book and see the information written in layperson's language, not in scientific language, but that takes into account this cutting-edge information that the scientists um, and clinicians developed. So this new book really serves as a way to empower people to understand these disorders and empower them to get help. You know, I liked your statement uh, earlier where you said that you wanted to make people more comfortable to speak out about their condition, and there's no more powerful tool than storytelling. And I understand that the book has certain narratives from actual people who have experienced many of the symptoms of common mental health disorders, and many of the common mental health illnesses, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, share some commonalities which often make understanding the nature of this disorder difficult for family members. And in the book, you say that these narratives provide relevant insight into the experience associated with certain disorders. Can you share some of the examples with our listeners? Many of the disorders that are described in the book, we give a, a real-life example that I think is very powerful and helpful for people to understand a, a condition. So it's one thing to have the listing of um, diagnostic criteria and other aspects, and it's important for people to have that information. But it really reaches home for people when they hear the real story of somebody who may have experienced some of those symptoms and then and then were able to get treatment and, and move forward with their life. That's a very powerful message. It's a message of hope, and also it's a message that you're not alone. There are other people who have the same condition. We'd like to take a look at this idea of mental health parity. You know, Congressman Patrick Kennedy uh, wrote the foreword to the book, and he's been a guest on our show, and 
has long advocated for patients to have access to mental health coverage. The Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act was passed in 2008 and has since been extended to patients covered by Medicaid. But even with that, we seem to still be a ways off from really guaranteeing access to care for many of those suffering with mental health issues. Talk uh, with us about this huge gap in the health care system. Yeah, Margaret, this is such an important issue. Uh, Congressman Kennedy has been such an extraordinary advocate for uh, parity, for making sure that people do have access to care. One of the problems with regards to the mental health parity law is making sure that that law is implemented on a state-by-state basis to its fullest so that there aren't roadblocks put in the way of people who need to access care. There shouldn't be any difference in accessing mental health care than there is in accessing physical health care. So one of the benefits of people having understandable information about diagnoses is that having that information helps empower them when they're hitting those roadblocks with some of the insurance companies. Because if the insurance company is saying, no, we don't feel that you require treatment or you don't meet criteria for treatment, et cetera, the person can say, you know what, I actually have the criteria and my loved one is experiencing these symptoms that are written in the criteria. So people need to stand up to an insurance company that may try to block access to care by not fully implementing the parity laws. And that needs to be very strongly answered. So I think that people's knowledge about the parity law and ability to advocate for themselves and for their loved ones is extremely important. We're speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein, uh, President and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, the world's leading private funder of mental health research. Dr. Bornstein is a board-certified psychiatrist. He's also editor-in-chief of Psychiatric News, a newspaper of the American Psychiatric Association. He's an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. I want to talk a little bit about the large number of veterans that have been returning uh, in this last decade from uh, wars around the world. I wonder if you could uh, sort of illuminate the problems that our nation's veterans and their families face, particularly in the areas of mental health needs, and what do you see as a viable solution to this enormous and complex uh, challenge? Yeah, this is a very important challenge and one that um, that everybody needs to step up to the plate, that our service members sacrifice so much to defend our country. And for those who return with injuries, whether they be physical injuries and or what's referred to as the invisible wounds of war, uh, they deserve all of the care that's possible. One of the, the tragedies relates to the the issue of suicide, the staggering number of active service members and and returning service members who continue to die by suicide. And I think that it's extremely important that all service members have access to care that they earned and they deserve. The issue of post-traumatic stress serving in in such difficult circumstances, many of the uh, service members had to go back over and over and over again, which is extremely stressful, Mm -hmm. um, not only for them, but for their families as well. Um, And it's important to 
uh, make sure that we have support available um, for the spouses, for the children of our service members. And I think that it's incumbent upon us as a society to honor their service by making sure that they get all the treatment that they deserve so that they can go. They have so very much to offer, Mm -hmm. to offer their communities. And often with a little bit of support and help, they're able to live their life fully and be an important part of their communities. Well, Dr. Borenstein, I want to talk a little bit about primary care uh, and the care of patients with uh, mental health uh, issues. You know, it's a it's a tenant of uh, primary care that it's care that's delivered close to where people live, work, play, and pray, and that it's provided in a way that's acceptable and satisfying to the to the patients and the community. In the world of community health centers, which is the domain that we're most familiar with uh, the integration of behavioral health and primary care, uh, and integration at all levels, the integration of the data within the electronic health record, uh, integration of training, and the integration of services all under one roof, is a movement that has really developed traction uh, in recent years, and certainly we have seen uh, firsthand the benefit of this to patients, uh, given that more than half of patients presenting in primary care also have a significant behavioral health challenge. Tell us what the perspective is from where you sit of just how much traction that is gaining and what do you think the future of seamlessly integrating behavioral health and primary care is? The majority of people in this country who have a depression, for example, do not seek or receive help. And this is an issue above and beyond what we discussed before in terms of parity. And of those who do receive help, often they treatment is by a primary care doctor, and often it's not fully adequate treatment. So the integration of mental health services is, is crucial. Um, and I think that the movement that's occurring, and the American Psychiatric Association is really at the forefront of this movement, of really working collaboratively with primary care physicians and other medical professionals will have a tremendous impact on the well-being of individuals and and overall in society. Um, For people with illnesses such as schizophrenia, the average lifespan Mm -hmm. is 20 years less than people without that illness. And that is typically due to medical issues. So it's important from both directions, Mm -hmm. um, people who are already receiving psychiatric care to make sure that they're getting the best possible medical care. Mm -hmm. If a person has a heart attack, the most important risk factor for them is even more important than uh, high blood pressure or high cholesterol is untreated depression. Mm -hmm. A person with untreated depression is at great risk of a bad outcome, but it shows the close relationship between the brain and the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. And we need to make the relationship on our end as physicians and other healthcare providers just as close. Dr. Bornstein, let's take a look at the work being accomplished at the uh, Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. Uh, as we said earlier, about $325 million in grants have been given directly to researchers in brain and behavioral health research. Could you tell our listeners about your mission and what on the horizon looks like uh, promising research? The foundation is an extraordinary collaboration, and it's a collaboration between those donors and the scientists. And we have an extraordinary scientific council 
And the council consists of many of the top, top brain researchers, psychiatric researchers in the world. And the council selects from a large application pool the grants that are funded. All of our funds come from private donations. And because of the support of two family foundations, every dollar given for research goes directly to research. We're able to support new and innovative ideas that aren't yet ready to get government funding. Mm-hmm. Um, often you need to have enough pilot data right. to get funding from NIMH, etc. We're able to give them that support to get that, that pilot data. And one of the, the statistics that I think demonstrates our success is that the over $325 million in grants that we've already provided has resulted in over $3 billion in additional support for those scientists, which is an extraordinary statement about the scientists Mm -hmm. and really about our scientific council selection process. So one of the areas that we were early supporters on and now has gained a lot of traction has to do with rapid-acting antidepressants. Mm. As you're aware, the current medications can take two to four to six weeks to have an effect. The um, rapid-acting antidepressants have an effect within a few hours. Mm. If you think about the potential of that, if somebody is depressed and at risk of harming themselves, they may may need to be admitted to a hospital for treatment. If the rapid-acting antidepressants are fully developed, such a person can go to the emergency room, receive the medication, and safely go home, continue to have treatment on an outpatient basis, and go to work or go to school the next day and move forward with their life. And that's something that I'm very excited about. I think it's going to happen in the next period of time. Let me ask you about just uh, one other area. Certainly uh, a growing body of data and research looking at the impact of emerging technologies on healthcare delivery and outcomes, and we're seeing things and, and doing some research of our own in areas like remote patient monitoring, telehealth, and also mobile health platforms that help clinicians across all the disciplines to meet the needs of patients wherever they are, You know, not just in our office, but wherever they are. What are your thoughts on how technology is playing a role in some of the new treatment protocols being considered to meet the growing demand for mental health? And maybe share some of your concerns and hopes with us about this domain. Yeah, I I think that what you brought up about meeting the needs of patients wherever they are is a tremendous opportunity for us with the current technology. So that for somebody who is, it's difficult for them to have access to, to get to uh, physician's office or other healthcare professional's office, um, to be able to do that with current technology is a tremendous opportunity and can make a big, big difference in people's lives. So I see that as being the, a real hopeful um, aspect of technology. And then the other area of technology in terms of research has to do with the, the new technology that we've developed in terms of genetics, in terms of being able to really study the brain, mm-hmm. um, the, the technology uh, called optogenetics, um, which is um, an extraordinary technology um, that is now being used in thousands of labs around the world to study the brain. Um, and this received early support uh, from, from our foundation a number of years ago. And so I think that technology will help us better understand the brain 
and develop new treatments. We've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein, President and CEO of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, Editor-in-Chief of Psychiatric News, the publication of the American Psychiatric Association, and creator and host of Healthy Mind, a syndicated show on PBS aimed at informing about and removing the stigma of mental illness. You can learn more about his work by going to bbrfoundation.org or psychiatry.org. Dr. Bornstein, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week? Well, the field of Republican presidential candidates got larger this week with the addition of Carly Fiorina, Ben Carson, and Mike Huckabee. When Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas, announced his candidacy, he repeated some old discredited lines on the economy, tax cuts, and health care. On health care, Huckabee said that Washington was failing to keep its promise to seniors. He claimed that, quote, Congress took $700 billion out of Medicare to pay for Obamacare. This is a whopper we have written about multiple times. The Affordable Care Act doesn't slash Medicare's current budget. Instead, it reduces the future growth of Medicare by an estimated $716 billion over 10 years. Most of that reduction comes from reducing the future growth of payments to hospitals and payments to Medicare Advantage plans. By reducing the future growth of Medicare, the ACA actually improves the program's finances. Critics of the ACA have long claimed that the $716 billion in cuts hurts Medicare, but these cuts in the future growth of spending prolong the life of the Medicare Trust Fund, stretching out the program's finances longer than they would last otherwise. We've written before that experts, including Medicare's chief actuary, doubt that some of these spending cuts will actually be implemented. But if they are, Medicare would spend less each year than it had been expected to otherwise, allowing Medicare to stretch further the income it receives from payroll taxes and premiums. We wrote about this claim several times during the last presidential election, and it looks like we'll still need to address it in the 2016 race. That's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When 12-year-old Spokane, Washington native Brooke Martin was given an assignment to find a need and then fill it, she thought of her beloved dog home alone all day. The family rescue dog suffered from separation anxiety, or she thought. What if you could create a video link with a smartphone platform, creating a portal to not only check in with your dog and interact with them, but even dispense a treat for them while you're away at home? Her invention, Icy Pooch, has been launched into the marketplace with some success. 
At that time, her grandmother had entered a senior living facility and was facing similar separation issues, and she wasn't doing well at keeping up on her meds. So I started thinking, well, hey, this technology might be really adaptable to, you know, elderly people or just loved ones who are separated and have a hard time communicating with each other. So the now 15-year-old modified her first invention designed for the family pets to a tool that would allow families to interact with their senior family members remotely via video chat, not only to keep an eye on the loved one, but to make sure they were being compliant with their medications. A huge problem for elders aging in place, so she created IC Loved Ones. Her dad, Chris Martin, explains how it works. It's a device about the size of a coffee can, and you put it on an end table or bedside table near your loved one, and you load the inside of it with plastic dishes. They're like Petri dishes, and you can put pills in them or candy or whatever you want, and you stack those up. And then what happens is you open up a free app that's on your phone or you log in into a web portal, and you can actually launch a video connection that auto-answers on the part of the end users. Daughter Brooke Martin says it's stressful not to be able to connect with your family elders, especially when you know their health is being compromised by isolation and lack of medicine compliance. Her simple drug dispensing system, a series of dishes stacked in a tower like a Pez dispenser, can be deployed remotely by family members via Snapchat-like mobile phone connection. And there's a button on the app, and when you press it, it just dispenses um, that dish of medication out. I IC Loved Ones has won several awards and was presented at the recent American Telemedicine Association Conference as a technology to watch. IC Loved Ones, a mobile phone linked platform that connects family members with elder relatives, creating video links and allowing them to assist in medicine compliant. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.